an Advent meditation for the fourth week. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa baby, a 54 convertible to light blue. I'll wait up for you, dear Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa baby, I want a yacht and really that's not a lot. Been an angel all year, Santa baby So hurry down the chimney tonight Santa honey One little thing I really need The deed To a platinum mine, Santa baby so hurry down the chimney tonight Come and trim my Christmas tree With some decorations bought at Tiffany I really do believe in you Believe in me boom, 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 boom. Santa baby Forgot to mention One little thing A ring I don't mean on the phone Santa baby So hurry down the chimney tonight Hurry down the chimney tonight Tonight. Blessed is our God at all times, now and always and forever and ever. Amen. I'm sure after hearing that opening of Santa Baby for the beginning of the Advent reflection in the fourth week, you're probably thinking, what madness is going on here? What is this? This has nothing to do with Christmas, Advent. Well, yes and no. This Advent reflection that we just went through, Santa Baby, is, is the normal way in which Christians in the first world, the United States, Canada, Britain, celebrate Christmas. It's, it's an experience of that celebration. I wanted to start off not just with a commentary about commercialized, uh, commercialized Christmas, but with an experience of it. And I thought using Santa Baby would do that. Now, Santa Baby was written by a Jewish man and woman who were professional composers, uh, Joan Javits and, 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 and Philip uh, Springer. And it was sung by a Cherokee African-American, Eartha Kitt. Now, I'm sure that these people, looking from totally outside, 
I mean, Eartha Kitt was born on a cotton farm in North Carolina. I'm sure that these people, totally outside the, the whole normal institutional Christian world, see Christmas differently, see how people react differently. Those of us who are in it, and it's normalized. And so back in 1953, they put together this, this song, which instantly became a great hit, instantly, and has been a big hit at Christmas time, a traditional Christmas song by now, in the first world. The last I looked on December 10th, it was the 28th most downloaded Christmas song this year, Santa Baby. Now, of course, everyone knows that it's a satire. It's an exaggeration. Sure it is. But it's an exaggeration to bring forth an experience to counter an experience. Symbols say something. Words, music, signs, they communicate. They communicate this or that, whatever it may be. And there are things they don't communicate. Santa Baby communicates an atmosphere that permeates Advent and, to a large extent, permeates Christmas. And we can laugh at it. But it reminds me of the time in one of the All in the Family shows back in the 1970s, which was a major television sitcom series. It's around Christmas time, and Archie Bunker, the main character, complains to his friends, Christmas has me by the throat again. And the entire audience roared with laughter. Everyone knows that Christmas has become the pursuit of something, the generating of a presence that is substantially different than the presence one finds in the Christmas story in the Gospels. So this is an experience, not a screed against how Christianity has normalized the anti-Gospel, for it is normalized. And so, and so what takes place is, is that the reality of Christmas, the centrality of Christmas to the entire gospel, the importance of Christmas that cannot be left out without ending the gospel altogether as good news, is just all but lost, except maybe for Christmas morning. In church. Other than that, Advent and Christmas are filled with the spirit of Santa Baby. The gifts may be different, but the spirit is the same. In contrast to this experience, that is normal in Christianity in the first world. Let's listen to another song, another Christmas song.
that will offer us an alternative experience, a radically different experience of what this day, what this time of year is supposed to present to us, is supposed to remind us of, is supposed to bring to our attention. Now we could stop right here and our fourth week Advent meditation would be done. Just leave the two experience of the two songs with you and you can think about them, meditate on them, ponder them, ask yourself the implications of one and the other and which one predominates Christmas and the Christmas season and the Advent season leading up to Christmas. And what does one communicate that the other doesn't communicate and vice versa? Which one is gospel truth and which one is anti-gospel? For it's not the songs, it's what they communicate, the truth behind them that's at stake here. And we, you can stop right here, right here, and, and just ponder those two Christmas songs, and you will have a wonderful meditation for the fourth week of Advent and Christmas Day. If you think you would like a little verbal help in reflecting on the two songs, and on this fourth week of Advent and Christmas, then you can listen on. But the songs raise the whole issue experientially. The songs obviously are in stark contrast with each other.
not just in words, not just in spirit, but emotionally. One is erotic. The other is agapeic. One is desiring for self. The other is total givingness by God. And so, it is not the songs again. It's the atmosphere that they are communicating that has become the atmosphere of Christmas in the first world. This year, that atmosphere, of course, it takes, takes no, no particular intelligence to see it. That atmosphere, for example, this year, is also subfused with the overriding ambience of Star Wars. It reeks of Star Wars because Star Wars makes money. Star Wars plays to those artificial desires that are in people. Star Wars and that value system and mentality is what people have been nurtured into by Christmas and other activities in the church, First World Church. And so, of course, Star Wars, it isn't a sable, it isn't a blue convertible, but it is what is desired this year and is wanted this year. And as the sable, and as the diamond ring, and as the platinum mind in Santa Baby, it is equally an utterly artificial need that we're craving after as a means of bracketing out the seriousness, the utter and complete spiritual seriousness of Christmas, the Incarnation. Maybe a point of Christian history and theology would, would help here. Do You know, in the early church, the first thousand years, in the Eastern Church, what took place was that there was a general understanding articulated by St. Maximus the Confessor, the father of Eastern theology, Gregory and Nysa, Isaac the Syrian, there was a general understanding that the incarnation, Christmas, the incarnation would have occurred whether there was any fall or not by Adam, whether there was any what's called original sin. The incarnation would have occurred. Why? Because God made us in his image and likeness. His image and likeness. His image and likeness we were made in because God wants to communion with us, communicate with us, be one with us, be with us. The Incarnation, Christmas, it was said, would have occurred 
because that was part of the plan of God at the time of creation. It was the way of God forming the most intimate union possible with human beings. By becoming one of them, like them in all things but sin. And before the fall, not even sin. Becoming one, one with them in an unbelievable, unbelievable intimacy of divinity and humanity. We get a little bit of this every time we go to Mass in the Roman Church. At the time that the priest at the offertory mixes the water and wine, he says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we become sharers in God's divinity as he has become a sharer in our humanity. Yes, that is it. That is it. That is what Christmas is about. That is what the Incarnation is about. God sharing our humanity out of his infinite, unbounded love for us because he wants to love us as totally and completely as he can and our freedom, he wants us to love him by knowing him. And now he becomes human in Jesus of Nazareth so we can know him. Jesus, the image, the visible image of the invisible God. The God who is agape, love. God in his unbounded love, his agape, comes down from heaven and becomes one of us so that we can be one with him. In those first thousand years, it was a common statement that God became human so that human beings could become God. First attributed to Saint Athanasius, but spoken all through the theology of the Eastern Church, even to this day. God became human so that human beings could become God. This is deeply tied, this is deeply tied to the creation of the human being. Human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. The image of God is all those capacities and faculties that the human being has, which, is, which are also God's. He's conscious, he's self-conscious. Conscious to some extent of God. He's logical, rational, can be. He can think. These are, these are capacities of God. He can will to go left or right, to love or hate. Now, these capacities, the will, the intellect, the mind, the conscience, the consciousness, these are the image of God. And let's be clear, nothing, nothing that you or I can do 
or any human being can do, can ever remove the image of God that is within us. We can distort it. We can ignore it. We can try to crush it and splinter it, shatter it. But it cannot be removed. As long as we are, we are in the, we exist in the image of God. And nothing can separate us from that. Regardless of what we do with it. The spark of the divine is always with us. Now the likeness of God is something different. The likeness of God is love, agape. Unconditional, everlasting love of all people. But what does the love of God look like? What does the love of God look like? Even if you're in the Garden of Eden before the fall, you wouldn't really truly know what the love of God looks like as much as you'd want to do it, what it meant, what's the experience, what's the direction, what should be willed. And so, even if there was no fall, God's intention and purpose was to become human, to be incarnated, that there be a Christmas. Because it is in knowing what the love of God is that we are able, by our will, to choose it and there grow in greater and greater likeness to it. And God gives us in himself, as truly God and truly human in Jesus, God gives us the ultimate manner, method, model to live by in using our free will to choose to become more and more and more in the likeness of God. The image of God we have forever. The likeness of God we grow in by loving as God loves. By following Jesus' commandment, his new commandment, his unique commandment, to love one another as I have loved you. Note, this is not a matter, first of all, of personal sanctification, private holiness. One can only love as God loves, loves as Jesus loves, if one is loving other human beings as Jesus did. Which human beings? Friends, indeed. Family, indeed. The sick, the suffering, indeed. But also the enemies, whatever they may be. Rich, poor, black, white, yellow, red. Different nationalities, 
different ethnic groups. All those things that the fallen world calls enemies are to be loved as Jesus loved his enemies all the way unto death on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So God's plan from before the Big Bang was that God would come to earth as a human being and show people how to become in his likeness, to love as he loves. And therefore, God, to use the, the Eastern piece of phraseology, God became human so that human beings can become God. But God is love, agape. So love became human. So that human beings could become love. We become love by growing in intimacy, in communion, in union with love itself. God, who is love, became human. So human beings could become like God, who is love. He could, human beings can share in God's humanity and divinity as God shares in our humanity. This is the importance, this is the importance of Christmas. It is not a throwaway feast. It is not a feast that, 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 that is to be used for something else and its meaning clouded by all kinds of things that are just the opposite of what it's about. So you may say, well, if that was God's purpose, to come as a human being and to love human beings and show them how to love, then what happens at the fall? What happens at original sin? Now God's purpose is not just as it was before the fall, to come and to show human beings how to love as he loves, and therefore that God and humanity could grow into communion and union and love with each other. Now it's that plus. The only way that fallen human beings, sinful human beings, concupiscent riddled human beings, can be recreated in the original image and likeness of God is for God himself to come and lay out there the way. The way to be recreated so that one grows in eternal, holy, unbounded love of all and of, therefore of God. That's what after the fall means. The fall was not necessary for the incarnation. The incarnation is based on God's infinite love for each and every one. The incarnation takes on a new aspect 
of recreating human beings in, in God's image and likeness as he wanted them, putting together the shattered pieces by coming and offering himself as the model, the power, and the wisdom that we, by free will, not forced, but by free will, can choose to become like, can become like the God who is love, can become one, living in and out and through of that God, made visible in Jesus. Christmas is the feast of the Incarnation. When true man and true God become one in the person Jesus, in the baby in the manger. The song All Holy Night, the Christmas hymn, captures that beautifully. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Savior from what? Sin. From evil. Savior to what? Eternal life with the God of love. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Sin and error, the brokenness of the fall, confusion, anger, hatred, unpeace in the extreme, and no way back to be recreated in the image of the original man a man and woman. And so God comes and he offers us the image, the icon, the way back to full intimate communion with him for all eternity. We have to choose it. Christian love, gospel love is always free love. It cannot be imposed, like any love can't be imposed. If I hold a gun to your head and say, say you love me, well, that's fine, you can say it, but it's fear that's speaking there, not love. Love is either free, Christian love is either free, or it doesn't exist. God wants us freely to love him, to conform our wills to his, as he conformed his, humbly conformed his life to ours. This is the incarnation. This is Christmas. This is the glorious reality of Christmas. We're called by that baby in the manger, just like us. We are called, called, vocation, vocal. We are called by that baby in the manger in Bethlehem who is true God and true, true human being. We are called to become recreated in our original image, to become new creatures from the, creature, from the creatures that have fallen, new human beings, a new humanity. A humanity that cannot 
be put together, put back together by humanity itself without the help of Jesus. That's power. That's the power, the wisdom, the model, the truth, and the way to do it. When Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty together again, that's exactly the human situation. All the kings, all the presidents, all the power politicians, all the moguls, all the big shots, all the know-it-alls, all the philosophers, obviously cannot put human beings back together again. Something has to happen. And that something is the God who is love, humbles himself to become a servant to all, to become human, so that we can choose how to love as human beings, body, soul, mind, and with the divinity in us. We have a direction. A truth. We have the way, in fact, the reality of new life in Jesus. This is the good news. This is the good news. God, who is love, became human in the incarnation. So human beings who are broken, shattered, could be recreated in the image and likeness of God and become one with the God who is love, share in the divinity of the God who is love. And so, in the Eastern churches, in Catholic and Orthodox, and in many of the Western churches, the Christmas greeting is Christ is born. Let us glorify him. Now glorifying God, glorifying God does not mean saying, gee God, you're a great guy and like we glorify a hockey team or we glorify uh, some politician or some celebrity or sports star. The word glory, Greek, we say it in the, the Magnificat, my soul does glorify the Lord. But do you remember how we used to say it? My soul does magnify the Lord. To glorify God is to magnify God. Christ is born. Magnify him. The God of love is now fully human, showing us how to be fully divine. Magnify him. The God of love is here to recreate the human being and humanity in its own image, in, in the image and likeness which he created it in, and to add to that his own intimacy and union with him forever. That's eternal salvation. God is love. And so, 
here we are at Christmas. And this great, magnificent feast of the Incarnation, almost universally in the Christian churches, from the first day of Advent till even Christmas itself, lives in a spirit not of that all-holy night when Christ the Savior was born, but in the spirit of Santa Baby. You know it, I know it. Now, of course, with everything we have in the liturgical year, it is meant to bring us back to our right minds on an aspect of Christianity. And if we use symbols, if we engage in activity that is not geared to bring, bringing us back to, to the centrality, the greatness, the majesty of the transcendent one becoming human. If we use symbols and signs that put in our minds just the opposite of the gospel, greed, lust, desires that have nothing to do with Christ and have everything to do with mercilessness in many ways, war toys, Star Wars, then we have just taken something that is supposed to bring us back at a particular time of year to our true selves, to what we are, to what we're here for, to what our purpose is, to how to live, and we just set it aside and we'll celebrate it on Christmas morning. Nicely, nicely done in churches on Christmas morning, properly done. You know, in the Jewish Passover service, there is a time when the youngest child asks the gathered community, why is this night different from any other night? And there are responses that are given with concluding with the notion, the idea, the fact of the book of Exodus. This is the night that God free, liberated his people from the Pharaoh of Egypt and all the evils they were enduring. He saved his people. So we celebrate. Now suppose you ask your children, suppose in the first world the average Christian parent would ask their children, the average parent, why is this night different from all other nights? Would the answer be because this is the night when the totally transcendent one, the all-good, the all-holy, the all-loving God became part of the human race so that we would become part of him and could become part of him forever and ever in his love? Or would the answer be This is the night when Santa comes and we get a lot of gifts. All the good things we want. Sables, diamonds, 
platinum mines, Star Wars movies, war toys, and a thousand and a million and one other non-necessary things. A good deal of them at the expense of third world people. Would the story that's told be Exodus? Would the story that's told on Christmas Eve be the nativity story of Jesus being born and the shepherds coming and the wise men coming and worshiping him? Worship is what it says. Or would it be Clement Moore's The Night Before Christmas? With visions of sugar plums, or sables, or blue convertibles, or rings, or platinum mines, or war toys, or Star Wars videos dancing in our heads. What would it be? Why is this night unlike any other night? Why is it different than any other night? Could there be a night so different in the history of humanity as the night when God, infinite unbounded love, God from all eternity, that the whole universe could not contain, came as a human being lying in a manger for our sake and for our salvation. What a night. What a night. And you know, it is not that the churches, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Evangelical, have totally forgotten this truth. It is that they've been so eaten up, their leadership and their membership, so eaten up, ground up like hamburgers, by the norms and values and atmosphere of secular society, that they've may smirged it all and left it all for one morning on one day in Christmas. But symbols, symbols, like songs, like icons, like Christmas trees, Symbols have power. Symbols, all words are symbols. They're signs. The word cup, C-U-P, is not the cup. The cup is this thing out here. That's a sign of it. And symbols can communicate truth or untruth. They can value or devalue a person or place or a thing. They can create emotions one way or another. And of course, symbols can lead us to God or lead us away from God. Indeed, symbols can start wars or stop wars. Consider. In 1914, the first Christmas that the First World War was going, 
There was a day, a one-day truce on Christmas Day. And people of different languages and cultures, enemies on the battlefield. That horrendous field of slaughter that was the First World War, living in trenches, cold, hungry, full of hate and despair, filled up with nationalisms and all the things that are contrary to the gospel. Lethal enmity. So the truce is called. And people of one culture, the Germans, happened to find this little something like a Christmas tree and put it up on the side of their trench and began to sing the traditional Christmas hymns. Silent Night, etc. The Christians on the other side of the battle line, the French and the English, heard the songs. They didn't know the language, but they knew, they knew the symbol of Silent Night that was an audio symbol. And they heard it. An old holy night. And they heard it. And gradually, both sides, and this is a historical fact, both sides on the Western Front, with trepidation at first, but with hope, left their trenches dropped their guns and came out and greeted each other as Christian brothers and sisters. They exchanged gifts. They sang songs together. They played soccer together. They loved as Christ loved together, even though they were enemies. And when the clock struck, and the truce was over, they wouldn't go back into their trenches and kill each other. They wouldn't do it. The pictures are there to see. The political and military big shots had to force them to do it under the threat of death. German, French, and English. Get back in your trenches and kill those people, or else you die. And they all did it, almost. It's not what they wanted to do, it's what they did out of fear. And the actual history is that both the, that the French, the English, and the Germans, their military hierarchy instantly began plans on making sure something like that never, never happened again in the war. But Silent Night, hearing the song Silent Night, hearing O Holy Night, hearing the Christmas spirit, not Santa Baby, reached into that spark of the divine in them. It reached into their Christ within them that they've had since baptism. And it drew them into a new life, into being recreated in the image of God. Christ 
Christ is born, let us magnify him. Let us glorify him. What that means, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we become like the God who is love, made visible in Jesus. And we become that by doing what the God of love would do in thought, word, and deed, imitating Christ, or in a sentence, living his new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. In good times and in ill. And of course, when we look at Jesus in the gospel, we know what that love is. We know what that love is because he is God. Because he lives it. And that love is a non-violent love of everyone. Jesus comes to teach us how to love, not how to kill. He teaches us that we're free to love and we're free to die because we will never be outside. The love of God, in fact, will be one with it if we die loving as Christ loved. He comes to recreate the image that has been shattered and broken. He is the new Adam. The old Adam disobeyed God and shattered the image in which he was made. The new Adam, Christ, comes and he puts that image back together by obeying God's will, loving as God loves, loving as the Father loves, and manifesting that, glorifying that, for Jesus is the glory of God. He is the manifestation of God. He is the unique manifestation of God. He is the only one, because he is the word of God, that could properly give that love that way back, that image in human capacities of thought, word, deed, that would be an image emitting from the person that would be the image of the God who is love. He is the only one that can recreate human beings in the image and likeness that God made them and bring them to eternal salvation, eternal communion with love itself, who can bring them to share in the very divinity of the God who is love forever. Christ is born. Let us glorify him. The nonviolent Christ is born. Let us magnify the nonviolent Christ.